0: Chapter 16 of Life in the Grainery at Montreal This is a LibriVox recording all LibriVox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org Life in the Grainery at Montreal by Sarah J Richardson Chapter 16 Horrors of Starvation One day a woman came into my cell dressed in white white cap on her head, and so very pale she looked more like a corpse than a living person. She came up to me with her mouth wide open and stood gazing at me for a moment in perfect silence. She then asked, Where have you been? Into the world, I replied. How did you like the world? Very well, said I. She paused a moment and then asked, Did you find your friends? No, ma'am, said I. I did not. Another pause, and then she said, Perhaps you will if you go again. No, I replied. I shall not try again. You had better try it once more, she added, and I thought there was a slight sneer in her tone. Perhaps you may succeed better another time. No, I replied, I shall not try to run away from the nunnery again. I should most assuredly be caught and brought back, and then they would make me suffer so much. I assure you, I shall never do it again. She looked at me a moment, as though she would read my very soul, and said, And so you did not find your friends, after all, did you? I again told her that I did not, and she seemed satisfied with the result of her questioning. When she came in I was pleased to see her, and thought I would ask her for something to eat, or at least for a little cold water, but she seemed so cold-hearted, so entirely destitute of sympathy or kind feeling, I had no courage to speak to her. For I felt that it would do no good. Perhaps I misjudged her. I knew from her looks that she must have been a great sufferer. But I have heard it said that extreme suffering sometimes hardens instead of softening the heart. And I believe it. It seemed to me that this woman had suffered so much herself that every kind of feeling was crushed out of her soul. I was glad when she left me, locking the door after her. Four days they kept me in this cell, and for five days and nights I had not tasted food or drink. I endured the most intolerable agonies from hunger and thirst. The suffering produced by hunger, when it becomes actual starvation, is far beyond anything that I can imagine. There is no other sensation that can be compared to it, and no language can describe it. One must feel it in order to realize what it is. The first two days I amused myself by walking around my room, and trying to conjecture the use to which the various instruments were applied. Then I became so weak I could only think of eating and drinking. I sometimes fell asleep, but only to dream of loaded tables and luxurious feasts. Yet I could never taste the luxuries thus presented. Whenever I attempted to do so, they would be snatched away, or I would wake to find it all a dream. Driven to a perfect frenzy by the intensity of my sufferings, I would gladly have eaten my own flesh. Well it was for me that no sharp instrument was at hand, for as a last resort I more than once attempted to tear open my veins with my teeth. This severe paroxysm passed away, and I sank into a state of partial unconsciousness, in which I remained until I was taken out of the cell. I do not believe I should have lived many hours longer, nor should I ever have been conscious of much more suffering. With me the bitterness of death had passed, and I felt disappointed and almost angry to be recalled to a life of misery. I begged them to allow me to die. It was the only boon I craved. But this would have been too merciful. Moreover, They did not care to lose my services in the kitchen. I was a good drudge for them, and they wished to restore me on the same principle that a farmer would preserve the life of a valuable horse. I do not remember leaving the cell. The first thing I realized they were placing me in a chair in the kitchen, and allowed me to lean my head upon the table. They gave me some gruel and I soon revived so that I could sit up in my chair and speak in a whisper. But it was some hours before I could stand on my feet or speak loud. An abbess was in the kitchen preparing bread and wine for the priests. They partake of these refreshments every day at ten in the morning and three in the afternoon. She brought a pailful of wine and placed it on the table near me and left a glass standing beside it. When she turned away, I took the glass, dipped up a little of the wine, and drank it. She saw me do it, but said not a word, and I think she left it there for that purpose. The wine was very strong, and my stomach so weak, I soon began to feel sick, and asked permission to go to bed they took me up in their arms and carried me to my old room and laid me on the bed. Here they left me, but the abbess soon returned with some gruel, made very palatable with milk and sugar. I was weak, and my hand trembled so that I could not feed myself, but the abbess kindly sat beside me and fed me until I was satisfied. I had nothing more to eat until the next day at eleven o'clock when the abbess again brought me some bread and gruel and a cup of strong tea she requested me to drink the tea as quick as possible and then she concealed the mug in which she brought it i was now able to feed myself and you may be sure i had an excellent appetite and was not half so particular about my food as some persons I have since known. I lay in bed till near night, when I rose, dressed myself without assistance, and went down to the kitchen. I was so weak and trembled so that I could hardly manage to get downstairs, but I succeeded at last, for a strong will is a wonderful incentive to efficient action. In the kitchen I met the Lady Superior. She saw how weak I was, and as she assisted me to a chair, she said, I should not have supposed that you could get down here alone. Have you had anything to eat today? I was about to say yes, but one of the nuns shook her head at me, and I replied, No. She then brought some bread and wine, requesting me to eat it quick, for fear some of the priests might come in and detect us. Thus I saw that she feared the priests, as well as the rest of us. Truly, it was a terrible crime she had committed. No wonder she was afraid of being caught, giving a poor, starved nun a piece of bread, and then obliged to conceal it as she would have done a larceny or a murder. Think of it, reader, and conceive if you can the state of that community where humanity is a crime, where mercy is considered a weakness of which one should be ashamed. If a pirate or a highwayman had been guilty of treating a captive as cruelly as I was treated by those priests, he would have been looked upon as an inhuman monster, and at once given up to the strong grasp of the law. But when it is done by a priest, under the cloak of religion, and within the sacred precincts of a nunnery, people cry out, when the tale is told, Impossible! What motive could they have had? It cannot be true, etc. But whether the statement is believed or otherwise, it is a fact that in the grey nunnery at Montreal the least exhibition of a humane spirit was punished as a crime, and nun who was found guilty of showing mercy to a fellow-sufferer was sure to find none herself. From this time I gained very fast, for the abbess saw how hungry I was, and she would either put food in my way, or give me privately what I wished to eat. In two weeks I was able to go to work in the kitchen again, but those I had formerly seen there were gone. I never knew what became of the sick nun, nor could I learn anything about the one who ran away with me. I thought that the men who brought me to St. Regis were kept there to go after her, but I do not know whether they found her or not. For myself I promised so solemnly And with such apparent sincerity that I would never leave the nunnery again, I was believed and trusted. Had I been kindly treated, had my life been even tolerable, my conscience would have reproached me for deceiving them. But as it was, I felt that I was more sinned against than sinning. I could not think it wrong to get away, if the opportunity presented and for this I was constantly on the watch. Every night I lay awake long after all the rest were buried in slumber, trying to devise some plan by which I could once more regain my liberty. And who can blame me? Having just tasted the sweets of freedom, how could I be content to remain in servitude all my life? Many a time have I left my bed at night resolved to try to escape once more, but the fear of detection would deter me from the attempt. In the discharge of my daily duties, I strove to the utmost of my ability to please my employers. I so far succeeded that for five weeks after my return I escaped punishment. Then I made a slight mistake about my work though I verily thought I was doing it according to the direction. For this I was told that I must go without two meals, and spend three days in the torture-room. I supposed it was the same room I was in before, but I was mistaken. I was taken to the kitchen cellar, and down a flight of stairs to another room, directly under it. From thence a door opened, into another subterranean apartment, which they called the torture-room. These doors were so constructed that a casual observer would not be likely to notice them. I had been in that cellar many times, but never saw that door till I was taken through it. A person might live in the nunnery a lifetime, and never see or hear anything of such a place. I presume those visitors who call at the schoolrooms, go over a part of the house, and leave with the impression that the convent is a nice place, will never believe my statements about this room. Nor can we wonder at their scepticism. It is exceedingly difficult for pure minds to conceive how any human being can be so fearfully depraved. Knowing the purity of their own intentions, and judging others by themselves, it is not strange that they regard such tales of guilt and terror as mere fabrications put forth to gratify the curiosity of the wonder loving crowd End of chapter sixteen